As Bobby's clients call in, the police answer the phone and build their case against him. The guy in the corner bar betting with a bookmaker, that bookmaker is going to be paying some of that money back into organized crime so through funneling system. And that money is going to be used for narcotics or prostitution or any of their other illegal activities. Evidence like this can disappear in a flash. There are some special papers which allows a bookmaker um, to do this. One's called a flash paper. Anything hot really will set it afire. I have a piece here if you'd like me to demonstrate it for you. At first it burns, it burns very slow, but then it starts accelerating. And it's just a, a big ball of fire and there are actually no residue left at all. This piece of paper is water-soluble paper. It's sometimes referred to as rice paper, which when immersed in water, it just rapidly dissolves dip it into it and I try to pull it out it just falls apart and you can see the ink is just kind of fading away no one keeps records when it comes to illegal football gambling but with billions of dollars bet on football each year it's easy to understand why organized crime would be interested in any inside information so the NFL warns all of its members annually to have no associations whatsoever with known gamblers. The NFL employs its own security force to make sure this does not happen. Preventing associations is the only way the NFL has of guarding against a fixed game. Behind the walls of this top security prison is a man who says he helped fix four professional games a year in 1968, 69, and 70. He says he was part of a syndicate of illegal bookies and their mafia associates. John Piazza. In return for financial assistance to his wife, Piazza repeated a story he has already told law enforcement officers. We had uh, the coach and we had the quarterback who was the offensive captain and we had the defensive captain. With help like that, the syndicate was sure to beat the point spread. Well, with the, with the quarterback, if he knew the perimeters of the scores that we wanted to, to hold, maybe he was down close to scoring a touchdown. But a touchdown would have put it out of the reach of where we wanted to go. So he'd throw a bad pass or throw it out of bounds and only kick a field goal. So that he'd have, he had control of, of where the points would fall. With well, the defensive back, if we got out of if it got out of control and maybe somebody intercepted a pass and ran it back or something that the offense has no control over, then the defensive back could slip or let somebody beat him on coverage or something, you know, enough to control where the points would fall. The coach was almost as important as the players. Well, the coach, if you've got a quarterback that's supposed to be a, a very, very good quarterback who has an extremely high percentage of completions, and then all of a sudden today he's uh, throwing them in the ground and throwing them in the seats and throwing them in a lot of different places. You don't want the crowd to start yelling at the coach and the coach to pull the player out when, when we need him to protect, to protect our investment. The purpose of this test is to determine your knowledge of and participation in payoffs for controlling the spread of points during a given professional football game. Have you voluntarily agreed to take this test? Yes. Frontline gave Piazza a lie detector test. These tests are not infallible, but this one found that he was telling the truth. He gave names, games, dates, 
and the actual amounts of money that changed hands. The players that were involved, they were like a, a consortium. Okay, we would guarantee them $300,000. If there was three in individuals, that would be $300,000 a piece. Plus, we'd give them 10 to 15% of what we took in. So if we took in uh, $3 million, that means that they were going to get an extra 300000 It could mount up to, uh, Pacific Instance, $800,000 was the total payoff. Piazza remembers that instance well because he says he carried the cash to the players. The intermediary arrived in a car with uh, two football players that were on the team. And the only way that I would give the money to the intermediary was to recognize the people in the car that were the football players and for him to get in the car with them so them and the money left together. Otherwise, they might have been able to say that we didn't meet our commitment or we didn't fulfill our end of the bargain, or, you know, whatever. But I wanted to make sure that the money and them were in the same car. The instance that I was involved in was not the last time that we did this, and I'm sure that if they hadn't been paid for their previous activities, that they wouldn't have continued on. There's not a lot of group fellowship in this business. Piazza's story serves to underscore the importance of the NFL's own rules on gambling. In addition to warning against accepting bribes or fixing games, the rules warn against, quote, any associating with gambling or with gambling activities. They are signed by Commissioner Pete Rosell, the man whose job it is to make sure these rules are followed by every member of the league. Does the rule about associating with gamblers cover players and owners, managers, team members as well? Uh, it would include everyone in the NFL, but of course you have to define the term gamblers. By gamblers, I assume you're talking about illegal gambling. I'm talking about illegal gambling. That's yes, right. continued associations after they know who the individuals are. Why is that so important, Mr. Commissioner? Oh, it goes to the integrity of the game. Our biggest problem is suspicion. Suspicion first clouded the NFL during the 1946 championship game. Polo grounds, pro championship game under a cloud. The Chicago Bears take the field against the grim New York Giants. Gamblers trying to make bribes involve two giant players, including halfback Kilchuk. The players had failed to report the bribes offered them. Officially, this is the only attempt to fix a game to which the NFL admits. The Bears are champs, 24 to 14, and the good name of football is still intact. In the early 1950s, the connection between mafia bosses like Frank Costello and convicted bookmakers like Frank Erickson were being exposed by the Senate Rackets Committee. What is your business? My business? I have no business. I'm in jail. Despite the occupational hazards, bookies and their mafia associates allegedly fixed a game in 1951. We had a referee in years ago that uh, uh, participated in, uh, in helping us with a game. There's a... A lot of ways, you know, that uh, there's a penalty, calls a penalty, an offside penalty. Uh, in them days, they didn't have this uh, 
this television replay. You know, they could get away with a lot of stuff. Roselle's first scandal came when Alex Karras admitted betting. Now Roselle, who'd been warned about Karras, had to suspend him. Of course, you make a mistake and you have a set... Another player, Paul Horning, made the same mistake and was suspended too. But Roselle did nothing when Horning was later seen with an illegal bookie. In 1970, news broke that a grand jury was interested in four quarterbacks, two college coaches, and a bookie. A federal grand jury will begin hearing testimony in two weeks, January 20th, about the operations of perhaps the largest betting gambling operation in sports history. The key man in the entire investigation is Don Dawson. It would appear he knows everybody who is anybody in sports. As a college coach 10 years ago, Frank Cush often phoned gambler Don Dawson. But last year, Roselle let Cush become an NFL coach. We told the Baltimore Colts we saw no reason why uh, he would not uh, be accepted as a coach at the time they hired him. An IRS affidavit, an investigation showed that Frank Cush talked numerous times to known gambler Dice Dawson. Was that a thorough background check? Uh, I'm sure that our security department evaluated that at the time. And again, the fact that uh, they, he knew someone and would talk to him a great number of times wouldn't necessarily mean, would, would mean that he would know exactly what the man's business is. Joe Namath had been linked to the Detroit grand jury. It was not his first brush with scandal. Broadway Joe, the swinging superstar of the late 60s, had started out as a bookie's runner. Later, he could often be found playing liar's poker in a notorious nightclub. And for months, the NFL had known that Namath's own restaurant had become a hangout for bookies and gamblers. One, two, three, heads, go, go, go! No one else gets more like Broadway Joe! When Manhattan police planned a raid on Namath's restaurant, Bachelors 3, Pete Roselle was forced to act fast. Namath was ordered to sell his place or quit the game. I... I'm not selling. I'll quit. Reporters spared the league and the tearful Namath the obvious question. This is ridiculous. Why hadn't Roselle acted months earlier? Well, when we learned of the problem at, at this Bachelor's Three restaurant, uh, we got all the information we could, and then I confronted Joe privately about it. Is that vigorous enforcement? I think that's as vigorous as, uh, as we can do in the way of associations. If they're going to uh, associate with individuals that are uh, clearly in the outskirts of society, they're going to bring discredit to, to themselves, to league, and uh, continue the association and just flaunt it, then I think something can be done. According to Pete Roselle, the game's biggest threat is suspicion. In 1978, the average Redskin fan might have been suspicious if he had known that a bookmaker was friendly with a team member, and that in this game, the bookmaker bet against the Redskins. Recently, these reporters wrote that during a raid, police had found two players, one of whom was a Washington Redskin, Jake Scott, in the home of a bookmaker called Bernie Fuqua. When the agents burst into Fuqua's house, 
there was Jake Scott on the sofa, and in a chair was Craig Hurtwig, who at the time was an offensive lineman for the Buffalo Bills. I forget when I did learn about that. I know that the two players involved, it was at the end of their career, and uh, nothing was certainly ever established on them. In fact, the newspaper reported that police told the NFL about the raid three years ago. When we contacted Warren Welch, who is now the NFL security chief, he looked in the NFL files and there was indeed a notice from Gary Garner of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation of the December raid on Fuqua's house and of Jake Scott's presence in Fuqua's house at the time of the raid. Associating with a bookie can cause suspicion, even though there's no evidence that Scott, number 13, meant to miss this tackle and allow a touchdown. Despite that association, the NFL was apparently prepared to allow Jake Scott and Craig Hurtwick to continue their playing careers. They did not play during our regular season next year. They, they retired from football, not because of the incident, but they were near the end of their careers. They played in the preseason the next year, however. Uh, they reported the training camp, but they did not play in the regular season. Uh, again, our Warren Welsh, I think, would be the best one for you to talk about on, on the details of that. They did not play in a regular season game after Fuqua's arrest in December of 1978. But they did play a preseason game. In 79, yes, they did. Mm -hmm. The Oakland Raiders say they told the NFL 15 times that their star quarterback, Ken Stabler, had been seen with convicted bookmaker, Nick Dudich. Still, the NFL did nothing. But a murder in Northern California changed that. Dudich had bet with bookmaker Whitey Green. After Green's murder, his runner, Gino Tropiano, began to talk about Dudich. He's been seen with Kenny Stabler at more than a dozen games, and which was substantiated by other Raiders also. They said he used to take him to dinner and he was a good friend, and that they'd never talk football. And I don't know why in the world a bookmaker would walk to, to dinner with football players after a game and not talk football. What else is there to talk about? The NFL asked Tropiano to take a lie detector test. Frontline did too, and paid him a fee. Though the NFL's polygraph found Tropiano truthful, it chose to discount his story. Stabler has sued NBC News and the New York Times for their stories on his relationship with Dudich. Stabler's association with Dudich is not illegal, but it could violate the National Football League Constitution. Each year, the NFL warns all players to avoid gamblers out of fear that the gamblers might attempt to bribe players to influence the outcome of games. The league's investigation of Stabler began in March, three years after first complaints about him reached league officials. Has there ever been a case? Folks, I know you're enjoying the episode because you keep coming back here, so we must be doing something right. Uh, in order to have a place that you can keep coming back to, we appreciate Get some skin in the game. We have a hot wire coming up. If you don't belong to Paint.tv and Hotwire, you're going to want to. Uh, the, the next episode, as we talked about focusing on your stocks and bonds and, and securities or any investments you may have or may plan to have in this volatile situation, environment, chaotic, turbulent, 
landscape. And so we're going to focus on that. But beyond that, folks have inquired, believe it or not, the kind folks who listen to us, how they can help out around here. Well, if you join pain.tv, that certainly helps. But in Hotwire, of course. Other folks who want to kick in can do it on pain.tv slash donate. And, of course, we talked about this on a regular basis. You can leave a, a review on Apple Podcasts. The young folks say that helps. Plain and simple. And share this show with friends of yours and help spread the word so we can keep growing. That's the name of the game. We have to keep growing. We grow organically. We grow grassroots. We grow from word of mouth, and we appreciate you using your words and your mouth to help spread the word about the Thomas Paine podcast. And it's uh, tough sledding these days for truth tellers. It really is. And so we we have embraced that, just like we have many of the challenges since we came back into journalism and remained independent regardless of uh, so many different trap doors and facets and, and uh, challenges and obstacles and roadblocks just with a simple mission to have a show where you can tell the truth and a number of different shows. And we've done that, but it's getting harder for us. So, you know, the drill folks, (laughs) there's a lot of things being bandied around here about whether this show goes behind a paywall or not. So, um, and I've been very open about that. There's no secret. It's not something we want to do, but our hand might be forced. But for now, that's not happening. And I don't ask for much. Uh, but I'm asking you perhaps to get some skin in the game. And you're going to get something out of it, of course, especially if you join Pain.TV. Especially Hotwire, where we say things on there and talk about things on there that we certainly can't say on here any longer on the public side. And that has turned out to be a massive windfall and benefit for folks. And I wish I could play those episodes on here, but I can't. We appreciate your support. If you want to broaden your horizons intellectually, make contacts, learn, and perhaps teach other smart people, that's the place to help out and make sure we keep rolling, rolling along, (laughs) regardless of what roadblocks these folks put in front of us. Uh, With your help, we can overcome And with your support, we certainly have endured. Appreciate it. Take care. Where the NFL's security forces done the investigation, found some wrongdoing with regard to association with gamblers, and then bring it to public attention first? You're talking about 23 years I've had this job. I I can't... Could you name one, maybe in the last five years or, or any one of the 23 years? I can't because I know what our normal policy is for... Uh, player fines on the field. Uh, with regard to gambling, specifically with regard to gambling. I say we don't make them public. That is our normal policy. Unless they come to public attention and it's important to uh, clear an individual or to take some action. What I'm saying is each one of these is a subjective judgment. We do very much quietly. If there's an association involved, we learn of it. We talk to the individual, whether it be an owner or a player. You could investigate the owners. Owners, owners as well as players, absolutely. You do a thorough background check. Our security department uh, investigates all possible background on the individual coming into the league as an owner. 
they, they check the best of their knowledge on their uh, associations, on their character, on uh, their finances, if, if, if they are to become a, be, to be an owner in the league. No owner had more dubious associations than the late Carol Rosenblum. In the late 1950s, he invested in this Cuban casino. In those days, Cuba's dictator, Batista, had thrown his country open to mafia-run gambling interests. Batista welcomed Rosenblum's partners, men like Mike McClaney, a stock swindler and tax evader, and Lou Chesler, a sometimes associate of mobster Meyer Lansky. Rosenblum shared Chesler's passion for betting on football. He used to bet against his own team, the Baltimore Colts, and was even accused of fixing games by leaving key players at home. In 1972, Rosenblum sold the Colts and bought the L.A. Rams, but he continued to play with fire, placing huge bets with mafia-linked bookies. Well, he placed a big bet with us. Between Gil, Beckley, and Marty Skarloff, we had to lay it off all over the country. And I laid off 200,000 of it, and uh, Gil and Marty handled laying off the rest of it. It was a total of a million dollars. Rosenblum used a bag man to courier his illegal bets in and out of Las Vegas. Identical briefcases would be exchanged in front of a newsstand. Victor Weiss was the man who carried Rosenblum's cash and placed his bets. But one day, in this hotel parking lot, homicide detectives found him, dead. He'd been shot in the head and bundled into the trunk of a red Rolls Royce. He had what appeared to be a close relationship with Rams, he used to spend Sundays on the home games in the Rams press box. If he's betting either for himself or someone else, there are, there are heavy wagers in the, uh, in the sports book making, particularly the, uh, the NFL. The murder of Weiss prompted questions about Rosenblum's own death just two months earlier. This is Golden Beach in Florida. Every year, Carol Rosenblum would come here, and every morning he would swim in the ocean. Until one day in April 1979, he drowned. His death still puzzles his son, Steve. Here's a man that spent most of the 72 years in or around the water, in fact, had lived on that stretch of beach uh, for about eight years or so and knew the, knew the ocean well. He knew undertoes and the currents and uh, could handle himself very well in the water. And uh, I just don't recall him ever going into the water by himself. My own feeling is with all these circumstances and questions still in my mind, uh, I don't believe that his death was accidental. Gino Tropiano has heard the story that's common in criminal circles. I think he was more or less murdered. He was held underwater until he drowned. One morning when he went to the ocean to swim, there was a guy in a wetsuit that was down below him, and he grabbed him by the ankles with his wetsuit so he couldn't go back up to breathe and held him underwater until he drowned. And they brought him ashore, and a a French-Canadian man was there, 
and gave him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation uh, to no avail, and he's disappeared, and the fellow that held him under has disappeared. The French-Canadian tourist did not try to revive Rosenblum. But according to a police report, he did swim out and try to save him. The report says that he failed to rescue the drowning man and that two policemen brought the body to shore. After that, the tourist went home to Montreal. Frontline asked a private investigator to contact the witness and sent him a copy of the police report. The death was accidental, according to the police report, which names the witness as Raymond Tanguay. A detective in the Mounties for 24 years, Eddie Noel verified that Tanguay has a completely clean police record. Then, on a snowy Canadian night, Eddie Noel took us to meet Raymond Tanguay. Noel had already interviewed Tanguay extensively and found that his unique eyewitness account contains evidence that does not appear in the official version of events. It is important to remember that though the police arrived on the scene within minutes, Tanguay was the only person actually in the water and close to Rosenblum as he was drowning. Tanguay repeated his story about what he saw in the water. Qu'est-ce que tu as vu quand tu es rentré dans l'eau? Euh, J'ai vu, euh, premièrement, M. Rosenblum, là, qui... He says that he saw Mr. Rosenblum out in the water, and he was shouting for help. Un affaire noire dans l'eau. Qui, la veille, elle a fait ça. As he was going out there, he saw a black object in the water. When he saw this object, it was going in the opposite direction of the waves, and it sort of crossed over. He only saw it once, as if it went underwater, submerged, and never came up again. Two men came out. Uh, they went into the water. The uh, taller man of the two grabbed Mr. Rosenblum underneath the arms. The smaller one uh, grabbed uh, Mr. Rosenblum by the legs. By this time, uh, Mr. Tangay went over to assist them and one of them told him not to touch Mr. Rosenblum and uh, to get away from there. Uh, they then dragged the uh, body to shore and uh, left him on the shore, and the two that brought him in simply walked away and left the body on the shore. Carol Rosenblum. His way of life raises questions about how he died. Rosenblum left some unfinished business behind him. According to a sworn deposition, Rosenblum and two other team owners had been scalping Super Bowl tickets for years. The year he died, the Rams had 27,000 Super Bowl tickets to sell. Rosenblum's widow Georgia has denied newspaper stories that she scalped any tickets. Nevertheless, Frontline has learned that the IRS is investigating the ticket scalping racket. IRS inquiries have centered on a Los Angeles hoodlum called Jack Catane. I've never met him, but I've talked to him on the phone. 
but uh, he's involved in a lot of things, uh, illegal activities in and around California and other parts of the country. Dear Jack, I spoke to your attorney this date. Attorney Tony Capazzola has been persuading Jack Catane to talk about the ticket scalping and to admit in writing that he once threatened Capazzola's clients, Harold Guyver and Steve Rosenblum, for talking about the scam. And uh, Harold Guyver told me that uh, Mr. Catane had made it very clear that uh, it was not in his best interest to say one more thing about the ticket scalping or any other derogatory thing about the Rams. And in fact, uh, not only Harold Guyver, but Steve Rosenblum uh, would be in some sort of jeopardy if they continued to say anything about that. Just consider 10,000 tickets for a Super Bowl. If those tickets are sold at $100 over face value, there's $1 million in cash. Stories about scalped Super Bowl tickets first surfaced in 1980. Catane's admission has never been reported, but Capazzola says he told Pete Rosell nine months ago. Mr. Rosell expressed his concern, said that he would uh, like to know if the matter uh, was not resolved and that he planned to uh, notify the appropriate people in the NFL uh, security, etc. Uh, I never heard from anybody in the NFL. Commissioner Rosell's job is not an easy one. Organized crime is always looking for associations. For a player, an association can be made over a drink at a bar. For a team owner, it could be through a business deal. Frontline has been examining a number of owner business associations. They are not illegal, they do not concern football teams, but they are of concern when we consider the NFL's own rule about questionable associations and how they can threaten the integrity of the game. Across the bay from San Francisco is Oakland Stadium, once the home of the Raiders. When the owner of the Raiders, Al Davis, decided to move his team to Los Angeles, there was a legal battle with Pete Rozelle. We thought we had a strong case going in and we think that it uh, came out that way in the evidence. I think we made a strong case on our own. During the legal preliminaries, no much was learned about Al Davis's business connections. We made a strong case there. Davis had come to an attorney's office in San Mateo, California, to make a long sworn deposition. Frontline has obtained complete transcripts of that deposition. It details Davis's relationship with the casino owner, Alan Glick. At age 32, Glick bought himself four casinos in Las Vegas with the help of a $100 million loan from the mafia-dominated Central States Teamsters Pension Fund. FBI wiretaps showed Glick to be little more than a frontman for mafia chieftains like Joey Iupa. An FBI affidavit says, quote, Alan R. Glick is merely a straw party controlled by the organized crime syndicate and designated by them to be the licensee on paper in the state of Nevada. From this office building in La Jolla, California, Glick concluded several real estate deals with Al Davis. But one of the partners 
suspected she'd been swindled by Glick. So Tamara Rand threatened to go to the FBI. Tamara Rand was a local businesswoman who we discovered on November 9, 1975, shot to death in the kitchen of her home in Mission Hills area of San Diego. We determined from our investigation that a weapon uh, similar to this one was used as the death gun. Tamara Rand's killer had shot her once in the ear and three times in the mouth with a silenced 22 caliber pistol. From the type of the gun that was used, we determined that this was a uh, gangland-style execution murder. It was the Chicago family that killed her. Naturally, they were protecting their interests. They didn't want Glick to get dirtied up. And evidently, this Tamara Rand had a lot of information to give. So they killed her. Al Davis's partnership with Alan Glick has been criticized by Pete Rozelle. Well, I, I don't really have that much respect for Pete Rozelle, especially... But Davis has done nothing to sever the relationship. Tom Meckling founded the National Commission on Gambling Information. It's an anti-gambling pressure group. Meckling's research has led him to delve into the business backgrounds of a number of football team owners, 